But um, it's interesting. I, I was just reflecting on this uh, my, my sermon this morning, and I was thinking, you know, I, I really had no idea how long this sermon series was going to take in terms of journeying through the armor of God when I started it in September. And then I was thinking, well, actually, it's started this series earlier because I started when we started in Ephesians 1, and that was almost two years ago that we started this series and, and how God has been journeying through uh, our, with our church. Uh, we've been journeying with God through this, this, uh, this letter. And uh, if, if you have a chance, I would love to hear how God has been speaking to you, how God has maybe been encouraging you or affirming you through this series, uh, this, specifically the Armor of God portion. Uh, I'd love to hear how, um, what, what, what encouragement has God been speaking to you about in terms of your own faith, in terms of your own righteousness, in terms of how you have been able to put on the armor of God in your own life. And would love to just to hear, um, hear what that, how God has been at work in your life through this series. After we finish, after after today, we will have finished our armor of God series, and then uh, after Sig preaches in three weeks, I'm going to actually. Um, restart, um, re- I'm going to finish uh, Ephesians chapter 6, and that, then that will, will be finished off with that entire book uh, as well. And so we st- we're not finished Ephesians yet, and, uh, and so we're going we're gonna to tackle that, finish that off in a, in a few, few weeks. Would you pray with me this morning as, as we uh, prepare for, to hear from God's Word? Lord, thank you for today. Thank you that we get to worship you get to hear from your word. And Lord, I pray that this morning that you would open our ears and our minds and our hearts to hear from what hear from your spirit this morning, that you would help us to, to be attentive to what your, your word has to say to us. And Lord, I pray that, that as, as, as you speak, that you would speak through me and that you would, uh, that, that if our minds take us on, on rabbit trails, that we would actually follow that because maybe it's where your spirit is wanting to take us today. Lord, that as we, as we engage in what your spirit wants to do to do in us and through us this morning, Lord, we, we say, speak, Lord, speak. I pray this in your name. Amen. Well, this morning when you woke up, I suspect that your day has been riddled with routine. Wake up, go to the bathroom, brush your teeth, shower, get dressed, unless you're uh, watching online, you're probably still in your pajamas, maybe make some coffee. Or if you're like me, you skip the coffee because coffee is like drinking poison, have breakfast, and then prepare for church. And I suspect that for most of us, our daily, routine, daily routines are pretty similar to each other's, and that our days are filled with similar rhythms on a daily basis, where so much of our rhythms are actually just second nature to us, where it's almost as natural as our first nature, to blink, to breathe, to think. We don't have to be intentional about so many of those things because it is, it's just an automatic response in our lives. Behavioral psychologist Wendy Wood, she writes that much of our daily lives are taken up by habits that we've formed over our lifetime. An important characteristic of a habit is that it's automatic. Now this morning, as, we, as I said, as we conclude our series on the armor of God and focus our attention on the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, we see Jesus here modeling for us what this sort of automatic response that Wendy Wood is talking about here within the spiritual battle that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. The 
portion of scripture we'll be studying today is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. But immediately before chapter 4 is obviously chapter 3. Within that chapter, we see that Jesus is baptized. And that during his baptism, the Spirit of God descends onto Jesus and says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And these words become a centerpiece for Jesus that sustains Jesus throughout his whole life, I think, but specifically, especially in these next 40 days in Matthew chapter 4. We read in Matthew 4 that Jesus was led, by, led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We read that Jesus was, was in the desert for almost a month and a half, 40 days, where he was socially isolated from everyone as he spent time in the desert. But not only that, Jesus was, but Jesus was also, not only was Jesus isolated for those 40 days, but it also said that he fasted during the entire time. He went without food that whole the month and a half. Picture that for a moment. Temperatures raising up to 40, 45 degrees Celsius in that Middle Eastern heat. Baking as he's just trying to manage on a daily basis. And then when he goes to rest, temperatures plummeting into single digits as he tries to sleep under the stars. As he sleeps on the ground and bugs are crawling on him and flies and spiders and fleas and locusts accompanying the wilderness experience with Jesus. And finally, at the end of those 40 days when Jesus is physically weakened by the lack of food, Jesus is likely feeling the effects of the zero social encounters over those 40 days. And certainly he would be feeling physically weary and fatigued because of the disruptive sleep that he's experienced. Now research has shown that, that when it comes to our own mental state and our, our own decision-making abilities, that, that there's four important factors that influence those things. That when we're hungry, when we're angry, when we're lonely, and when we're tired. Now, support and recovery groups, they actually use this acrostic HALT as a self-assessment tool to stop and identify how and when we might be more vulnerable than other times to avoid relapsing. So when we're hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. I think the argument could be made here that after those 40 days, Jesus was certainly feeling at least three of those. Hungry, absolutely. Hadn't gone without food, had, had gone without food for 40 days. Angry? Maybe he was hangry, lonely, hadn't had any social interaction for 40 days, and tired. Yeah, you've got to imagine that there's probably some level of fatigue and exhaustion that he's experiencing as well. And it's in this moment, after the 40 days, where the devil makes his first attempt to tempt Jesus. And it says in verse 3, Satan approaches Jesus and says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. I mean, after all, it's been 40 days since Jesus has eaten. You'd think that just about anything would look edible at that point. Now, we may initially read this, this specific passage and think that the temptation here is for Jesus just to perform a simple miracle like turning stones into bread. After all, hunger does make us do funny things. Certainly, Jesus has the power and the ability and certainly the right to do that to meet his own needs. We see 
these types of miracles all over the place in the Gospels. In fact, in John chapter 2, the first miracle Jesus performed was actually not that different where he turns water into wine. But it's what the devil says at the beginning. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. It's in these words that Satan shows his hand and reveals that this temptation has very little to do with bread and, and stones, but actually has much more to do with Jesus' sonship and what that actually means for Jesus and if God will provide for him in the midst of that or not. So the temptation that we see here is whether Jesus would use his own sonship to meet his own needs or not. Here, Satan is challenging Jesus and saying, if you are the Son of God, just provide for yourself. Make yourself a meal because I know you're hungry. At the heart of this temptation is a question of God's provision and whether or not Jesus would trust in his Father in this time of deep critical need. I think at one point or another, all of us wrestle with whether God really will provide for us. Whether it's in our health, or our finances, our relationships, or something else entirely. Where we can struggle with whether God will strengthen us when we fall ill, or protect us from getting sick, like, say, in a pandemic, for example or whether God will meet our needs when our finances start to run tight, or whether God will provide that soulmate that we so desperately long for, and, or even just some companionship that we just want to enjoy life with. And so we get to the point where we're tempted to question God's provision in the midst of it, and we can often conclude that God just hasn't provided. And then the temptation then is to take matters into our own hands. So again, using Hulk as an example. Well, I'm hungry. Well, I'll just binge on this tub of ice cream. Well, I'm angry. I'm just going to do a little bit of shopping therapy. That'll help me feel better. Or I'll make that person feel worse. I'll take my anger out on them instead. Or I'm lonely. Well, I'll just check out this website. Or I'm tired. You know, I'll just work a little bit harder so that I can get, I'll finally get that break that I need, eventually. Or we just become so fatigued that we just become apathetic and just throw our hands up in the air and say, whatever. All of those are taking matters into our own hands. Jesus, though, responds to this temptation with a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And he says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Or somehow, in the midst of this physical hunger, in the midst of Jesus' loneliness, in the midst of Jesus' fatigue, Jesus is still able to recognize his total dependence on God's word and his life. That somehow, Jesus is able to hold on to the sustaining strength that God's word is enough. As he holds on to these parting words as he enters into the wilderness, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus' food, his nourishment, his strength, his provision was the word of God in his life. Something in these words from his father during the baptism were enough. Where in spite of 
his circumstances and his own physical weakness, God's words were enough to help him to de- were enough to, for him to depend on, to lean into, to find strength and actually resist the first temptation to take matters into his own hands. So Jesus says these words, and then Satan responds with a second temptation in verse five and six. It says that Matthew writes that the devil took Jesus to the holy city, Jerusalem. And had Jesus stand on the highest point of the temple. And again, if you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan here is actually using a very similar tactic that he used when he was speaking and tempting Adam and Eve where he takes God's words and actually twists them and, 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 and tweaks them enough, manipulates them enough to lose their intended meaning. Jesus uses God's word as a weapon against Satan in the first temptation. This time, though, Satan actually prods Jesus with the same weapon that Jesus had just used against him. This time, Satan is actually using God's word as a weapon. And so he takes Jesus to Jerusalem. And as they stand on the highest point of the temple, looking over the city, Satan quotes a portion from Psalm 91. And he manipulates and tweaks the words just enough with some small and subtle changes, just enough to distort the intended message entirely. Now, the omission here. In, in Satan's words is slight enough that it shifts the original text from trusting God as we walk in obedience to him to what Satan would suggest is just an invitation to, to just do unnecessary and foolish risks where we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, and however we want because God's angels really won't let any harm come to us. And so Satan's conclusion in this, in this passage is that we can do as much self-serving decision-making as we want compared to the original intent, which says that if God has led you, he will provide and be the one to protect you as you follow obedience. Very different conclusions. In the first temptation, Jesus answered Satan by affirming his dependence on the Father. This time, Satan pushes that dependence to the limit and says, oh, you trust your Father? If you really believe that God will take care of you, let him prove it. And you can just see the taunting. Let him prove it. Let's let, in fact, let him prove it publicly so that everyone can see just how your father provides for you. See, the temple was the center of religious activity for Israel. The jump that Jesus would have made would have been seen by all the key religious leaders. And the rescue certainly would have been enough to convince that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. And in a single act, Jesus could have won over every skeptic. And he could have avoided three years of conflict with the religious establishment. But again, Jesus sees through this temptation and responds to Satan's taunt with another portion of Scripture from Deuteronomy. This time it's Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test interesting here, that word test is actually the same word we, we read at the beginning of this, this chapter in verse 1 when it says that Jesus was tempted. 
the word tempted and test are actually have similar Greek root words. In verse 1, tempted here is an attempt to solicit Jesus into sinning. Essentially, it was to test his character by offering a variety of sin choices. The word test that we're reading here in verse 4 is again testing, testing God's character, but this time requiring evidence of, of what God's character is like. Jesus here in verse 4, though, says, no, don't do that. Don't test God's character. You don't need proof. You don't need God to display his, his character or power. There's actually enough evidence in Scripture to point us to the reality that God will protect you. There's actually enough evidence in Scripture that reveal God's character so that we can submit to whatever that protection and provision looks like. Where we can actually know that protection from God may not always align with what we think it should look like, but that it will still happen. Let me say that again. There is enough evidence in Scripture to point us to the reality that God will protect us. There's also enough evidence in Scripture that reveal God's character so that we can submit to whatever that protection and provision looks like. There's also enough evidence in Scripture to know that sometimes God's protection doesn't always align with what we think it should look like, or what we think it should be. Let's look at Jesus. Protection is very, very different than comfort. And I think what we see here is that Jesus, in the midst of the wilderness that his father, his own father, led him into, that Jesus was far, far from comfort, comfortable. But yet Jesus also understood and had an, enough faith in the Father to know that he would be okay, that he would be protected. Now, admittedly, when I get uncomfortable, it is really easy to lose perspective. It's not hard for me to conclude that because I'm now uncomfortable, that's, now that I'm uncomfortable, that somehow God has stopped protecting me, or that he's harming me in some form or fashion. But what if we are in a place of discomfort because God is wanting us to deepen our faith in him and lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways submit to him? so that he can make our path straight. After the second temptation, Matthew writes that the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he says, all this I give you if you'll just bow down and worship me. So as Jesus looked across the vision that Satan had created for Jesus, and he would have shown Jesus a world led not by a milita military power like Rome, but instead a world led by Jesus. All the good and love and compassion that was Jesus now was able to, to lead them in that way. He would be able to satisfy all those things as he governed them. How beautiful would that be? Jesus for Prime Minister where Jesus could pass legislation that benefited the good of humanity and he could look out for the benefit of every person he ruled. He wouldn't be corrupted by the demands of politics. I mean, the 12 disciples, who needs them? 
He'd have thousands and thousands of followers at this point that would be at his beck and call as he exercised his authority over them. And then, of course, the temptation of pride creeps in. Sure, that was certainly aroused in this temptation. All those people who would love and appreciate Jesus, his influence would be boundless as, as a governing leader, wouldn't he? And really, what difference does it make how his authority was achieved in the end? The ends justify the means. At least they do according to the devil, right? See, in this case, if the means are corrupted and distorted, the ends will also be distorted and corrupted as well. What Satan was offering here was an interpretation of the ideal that, I was, that would actually sidestep the cross. Where the kingdoms that Satan was showing were the same kingdoms that Jesus' father had promised him someday. It's just that the devil was offering that someday, today. All of the suffering that he would experience in three years on the cross could be avoided in this moment. All he would have to do is turn his back on that for a moment and just bend his knee in Satan's direction. And that's it. But it's not who Jesus would be worshipping. It would be who Jesus wasn't worshipping. His own father. His father whose own words were still echoing in his ear. This is my son, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And again, Jesus responds to the temptation with another passage from Deuteronomy, this time Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. And he says, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Where this temptation would have been alluring and seductive. The temptation always is. And Jesus looks on at this vision in His vulnerable state and recognizes that the path that the Father has called him into doesn't have shortcuts. That this path doesn't have compromises. That the path that Jesus was now on would be filled with difficulties and hardships and rejection and pain and suffering and ultimately would lead to death. It was the exact opposite of everything Satan was offering in that moment. Things like success and comfort power and acceptance. And it's in this moment that we see the temptation for Jesus to reject the divine purpose that he was on and worship the things of this world. Yet those things of the world are just so, they're so appealing, but so temporary. The path that Jesus was on meant a cross, not a crown. And I don't know about you, but I can I can absolutely relate to this temptation as well. Where I know that I don't always assign my value based on my identity in God. Sometimes I value the, the acceptance of other people over God. Sometimes I want to be successful in the eyes of other people, especially in the world's eyes. Sometimes I want to have financial success. Sometimes I crave all the things that this world would assign value to. Oh, that person got to go on vacation somewhere? Oh, I would love to do that. Look at the vehicle that person's driving. Wow, wow, that person's house is so big. And I often find myself wrestling with the, 
temptation of comparison. This offer from the devil was a temptation for Jesus to divide his loyalties and deviate from the life that God had called him into. Jesus, though, understood that his kingship was intertwined with his own suffering servanthood. See, one of the biggest temptations I think that we all wrestle with when it comes to faithfulness and obedience to God is that we don't always get recognized or acknowledged or appreciated for our faithfulness and obedience. The road of obedience is unfortunately riddled with people who have given up or become discouraged or people who have turned around because they were expecting something entirely different. They thought that the path of obedience would be easier or that they would be able to, or that they would be acknowledged for their efforts. Surely someone has to notice all the good things that I've done. Or they found themselves disappointed because as they were saying yes to God, they discovered that they weren't doing what other people were expecting them to do. So again, they didn't get that appreciation that they hoped for. Jesus here, though, shows us that the path of obedience and faithfulness isn't rooted in the recognition of others. It's rooted in worship of God. That it's easy to get caught in the idolatry of worshiping ourselves or our opinions or our perspectives. That it's much harder to root ourselves in worship of God within our lives. So after the third temptation, Jesus finally resists these three temptations and we're going to skip over to the Gospel of Luke for a moment to the same event. This time in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, it says, The devil had finished all of this tempting, and he left Jesus until an opportune time. Cryptic. Very open-ended. One of those times, I believe, comes at the end of Jesus' ministry. As Jesus prepares for his death on the cross. And once again, Satan tries one last time to reroute Jesus' path, and he actually uses the exact same temptations on Jesus in Matthew 26 and 27 that he tried in Matthew 4. Matthew 27, verse 40. We read the taunts from the crowd. If you are the Son of God, sound familiar? If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And again, Jesus tempted to take matters into his own hands. Matthew 27, verse 46. This time, Jesus, using God's word again, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This time, Jesus, as I said, using scripture, questioning where God is at in the midst of his suffering, yet remaining faithful to the path that was laid out and then before the cross, Matthew 26, verse 42. And Jesus is in the garden praying. It says, Jesus went away a second time and prayed, My Father, it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it. May your will be done. Jesus, again, questioning, wondering if there's yet, and there's got to be some other way. Yet, strengthened in his unrelenting submission to the will of his Father in his life. As we think about our lives, we are always wrestling with opposition from Satan. 
He doesn't care how old you are. He doesn't care what culture you're from. He doesn't care if you're wealthy or if you're poor. He doesn't care if you're hungry, if you're angry, if you're lonely, or if you're tired. Satan sees you as a threat. And certainly if he sees that you are vulnerable, he will absolutely look for opportunities to attack us. Which means that we need to be ready. Now when I started this series in September, I made the statement that when we make our lives all about Jesus, which I hope that you hear over and over and over again from this stage, throughout this church, that we, our church is all about Jesus. We are making a declaration that we are willing to fight against Satan because we have the power and authority of God's Word in our lives. One of the ways that we can be ready for those attacks is by consistently trying to live out the words in the scriptures. Living out God's Word in our lives. So this morning is, as we consider the three temptations to reject God's provision, to question God's protection, or to compromise on God's purpose. We see this undaunting commitment to God's word from Jesus. This is my son who I am well pleased. Let me close with this as the worship team comes up. This morning, as as we consider how we wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, I think we see some important truths, a couple of important truths that I want to highlight here through the temptation. First one is this. The level of biblical literacy that we see from Jesus here, I think, is important to recognize. That it's not just enough for us to own a Bible and put it beside our bedside table and think, oh, I I own a Bible now. That's good. Jesus shows us that there needs to be an understanding that it's not just a series of words, but that it has the power to transform and influence, direct, and shape our lives. We see... Jesus' ability to recall God's word in a time of need as if it was second nature. As if it was a habit. Second thing we see is that the devil can't stand against God's word. He knows the words in it, doesn't he? The temptations make that clear. Satan has some level of understanding of the Bible, but he chooses to reject it. And instead, he uses it as a tool to twist what God intended to say. The devil opposes God's word. But we see from the temptations that Satan has no authority over these words. So we read it. Not just for the information's sake. Not just to gain more intellectual understanding of what happened in in history. But we read it knowing that it is a powerful resource to fight against Satan's temptations in our lives that we can continue to walk with Jesus as he speaks life into each of us. The third is this. The Bible has the power to transform each of us. It's God's word written to you. It declares your love. It declares God's love for you. It reveals his plan for humanity, which also includes you. And it exposes the brokenness in our lives, but tells us that there is hope only in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word. 
for its sustaining, strengthening power. That as we, as we carry this sword in our lives, as we live it out, we use it as a weapon to, to speak life. We use it as a weapon to speak love and hope. Well, this morning we pray that, that our hearts, that our words would reflect the, the truth and the, and the grace that is in these words. That is in these words. Lord, we thank you that you can transform us through your word. That as your spirit works in us, that you would reveal who you are to us.